The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for starting your week with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. As we assemble our panel on a busy Monday here, coming off another busy weekend with news, and we have a couple of lead stories that we're balancing. We want to start with the whole banking situation here, because people do seem to be feeling a little bit better about things, and it has a lot to do with the sale of Silicon Valley Bank, or what's left of it, following, of course, the run that wiped out the company. First Citizens Bank shares the buyer, the deal to settle SVB's fate, tamping down, as I read on the terminal, some of the turmoil that has engulfed the financial world. But, of course, we also know that the the administration, and by that I, I mean you know all of government here, really, regulators and the White House and the Fed, Stand ready to do more. Authorities are considering now expanding this emergency lending facility for banks in ways that would give, for instance, First Republic more time to shore up its balance sheet. And that is also why there seems to be a little more confidence uh, in the air. Let's take a quick spin with Rick and Jeannie on everything uh, before we talk to Mick Mulvaney, who's with us today as well. Rick Davis, even on Friday, we didn't know what kind of a weekend it would be. We didn't have another bank collapse. It was quite the opposite. We got the sale of SVB. That's kind of off the plate now and a government that stands at the ready. Are we in better shape than we were three days ago? Yeah, it makes sense that there's been some stability. I mean, you had to hold your breath over the weekend. It's last two weekends have not been good. Very yeah. rocky for the banking community. And in this one, the fact that there weren't any glaring headlines of something that could make the process work even worse um, is... Uh, is, is a positive. Uh, and, and I think right now you actually sh- see a lot of the shift of the, the dialogue in Washington going toward what's going to go on Capitol Hill. Uh, is there going to be new regulation? Is there going to be increase in the, in the, uh, in the deposit uh, uh, payments? So sure. uh, I think that these are the things that uh, I think are going to be a positive for this administration if they can start to shift into a more stable environment. Jeannie, I know you don't speak for the White House, but why not have Joe Biden out there before the open today saying, guess what? You still have nothing to worry about. I told you that two weeks ago when we made sure that your money was safe. You know, I I do think it makes sense. It is good news. It is making people feel better and and feel like they can have more faith in the system. Things aren't as jittery, potentially, as they felt like late last week. Um, So I do think the White House needs to do more of that. But, you know, I also take a wait-and-see attitude on this. We have the Senate Banking Committee hearing tomorrow. And for all the issues involving banking, there are a lot of politics there. You know, just start with Kristen Sinema, this newly independent who's been attacking Democrats. You have Sherrod Brown, Tim Scott. I mean, the list goes on and on. And you're going to have regulators up there. I think they're going to be on the hot seat. So that is going to be one to watch just for the politics, let alone the regulation discussions that potentially emerge from it. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are back with us in a moment as we add Mick Mulvaney's voice to the conversation. Of course, former OMB director, former U.S. Special Envoy for Northern Ireland and former acting White House chief of staff. He's with us now as he joins us each week around this time. Mick, thanks for coming along. 
I don't know if you heard uh, Rick and Jeannie's take on this, but there does seem to be a feel that confidence is restored today. Do you agree? Uh, I, I do a little bit. And, and you know, Jeannie was probably afraid to, to say what a lot of folks would say to the answer to that question, but why is Biden out there? He's not the person yeah. right now who's sort of, he doesn't embody a lot of confidence. I think Janet Yellen has been the right person to come up and deliver this message. So I, I think that's why you're not seeing the president much and you're seeing Yellen a, a good bit. But I do think things have calmed down. I think the purchase of SVB by, um, by First Citizens, which is a, a fairly local bank to me here in the Carolinas, mm. might have also calmed people down, knowing that there's still value there and there's still assets. Clearly, the stock is up 40% today, so some folks yeah, agree right. with that. No, but that's I, got I think a lot to calm do. down a little bit, at least for the, for the near term. And news that the U.S. stands by to do more. They're, they're looking at First Republic uh, still, Mick. But the next couple of days could actually bring, it seems to me, uh, at least a feeling uh, when it comes to the political side of this that, that we're getting beyond it. Yet we're also going to be having the banking hearings this week in Washington. It's probably pretty well time that this SVB matter was wrapped up before those began, just for the sake of everyone's nerves, don't you think? <laughs> for the sake of everybody's nerves and the, and the and the amount of political grandstanding that will go on, yeah, uh, there'll be a good bit of that anyway. Um, but uh, listen, I, I think the better question is 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 is, is looking for. I think Jeannie mentioned it. Is what happens next legislatively? Um, will Congress use this whole episode as as a way to change the regulation? Will they have to raise the the insurance rates? I mean, if they're going to take the insurance rates above two hundred fifty thousand dollars, or at least the coverages above two fifty, they'll probably have to raise rates there. Um, but there'll be a lot of activity, I would think, in the next couple of weeks. The, the big question, obviously, Joe, is what don't we know? We, we didn't see SVB coming. We didn't see First Republic coming. There's many people who say that we should have, but we didn't. The question is, can we get a couple of weeks under our belt of, of, mm-hmm. of, of no panic, no turmoil, before, the, before another shoe drops? What do you expect at these hearings beyond the grandstanding that, that you referenced that I'm sure is going to be a free-for-all for a lot of lawmakers, but we'll get a swing, you know, in, in the House and in the Senate. Are, are we going to learn a lot, or is is, the, is it too early to have, I know it sounds weird, but too early to have the autopsy? Yeah, no, it is and it isn't. Yes, a good question. What might we learn beyond the grandstanding, people just trying to get stuff on social media? Why did the regulators miss it? I, I think there may be some sort of overlap in terms of the Venn diagram between the Republicans and Democrats and what they want to talk about. I think they both might want to talk about why the regulators might have missed or seem to have missed some glaring sort of risks on the books at SVB. That, again, that you get Republicans beating up on the Biden administration, that, that, that doesn't help. You get Democrats saying it's Trump's fault, that doesn't help. So what, where is that middle of that Venn diagram? And I think it might be, okay, uh, who missed the duration risk? Why didn't we see this? If, if, um, if the FDIC was talking about this just a couple of weeks beforehand, um, and Grunberg was making comments about it. Why, why didn't anybody do anything about it? That might be helpful uh, as we move forward. Yeah, I, I boy, I don't know. I, you've got voices from the FDIC and the Fed uh, up here. In fact, the, the, you know, from Fed supervision, no less. Who would you rather have some time with when it comes to this issue of SVB and Signature, for that matter? Um, you know, I, I guess as a former regulator, you know, I, I sort of took the FDIC a little, excuse me, I, I took the Fed a lot more seriously than the FDIC. I took them both seriously, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But when it came to sort of who I would, t- who would I pick up the phone first if I wanted to answer the question, I called the Fed before I called the FDIC. We're spending time with Mick Mulvaney here on uh, Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. And of course, we're coming off the big uh, night in Waco here that 
I, of course, have to ask you about. This is Donald Trump, Waco, Texas, the first big bash rally of the 24 campaign, although I feel like I heard that already. Either way, he went to Waco. And 2024 is the final battle. That's going to be the big one. Yeah. If you put me back in the White House, their reign will be over, and America will be a free nation once again. He's getting a lot of talk here, uh, Mick, not for the political messaging or, or policy that came up, but an airing of grievances that even include playing a video from January 6th, violent video of, you know, people rioting and bashing up the place as he played the uh, anthem from the so-called January 6th choir. This felt like new level to some people. Do you agree? It did. It felt like that to me. In fact, I was trying to figure out what's going on. Why go to Waco, Texas? And I know that Lieutenant Governor said there's all sorts of good reasons, infrastructure, proximity, all that kind of stuff. But it's going to be inevitable to draw connections with what happened in Waco, you know, two decades ago, especially with the anniversary coming up. So with yeah. that in mind and with that video playing and him putting his hand over the heart during the, during the right. video and the, and the great sort of airing of grievances, um, made me wonder if he's not sort of – if he's just not raising money. Because um, he's not adding any votes, right? He's not adding any 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 votes. He's not adding anybody who didn't vote for him in 2020 to get them to vote for him in 2024. You know, no one. It's, it's like his tweets last week about death and destruction. That doesn't add a single, you know, white suburban housewife in <laughs> Minneapolis think. to the to the base. So it's almost like he's out there just trying to get the the 30 percent of the of the country that loves him to get more engaged and send him more money, um, which is a bizarre thing um, to sort of look at. But I I sort of got the impression that's what this is. He's pandering Mm -hmm. to the base more and more instead of trying to grow it, which is usually a sign for failure in in that business. Is there going to be a real effort here on on his part or in the part of the so-called MAGA wing? And I guess it's already underway, but to not only justify January 6th, but make heroes out of these people who who have been convicted, uh, who aren't now in prison. Yeah, that's new to me. Uh, I have heard that in the last week. I was on TV last week um, with a, a representative of the, of the Trump team, Liz Harrington, mm-hmm. who for the first time I've heard in a long time started to try to make the case that there were FBI informants in the rioters to try and stir things up, um, <laughs> to sort of entrap the people and make Donald Trump look bad. Yeah. Um, if, if she's talking about that on television, that's what they're hearing at Mar-a-Lago. That is the chatter in Mar-a-Lago, and that's what they're told to go and talk about when they get on these, these, news, these news hits, which means that this is being cultivated in the Trump camp right now. And I think it's a huge electoral mistake. Um, I certainly don't think it helps the country very much. But, yeah, I'm starting to see the same thing as they're trying to sort of mm-hmm. recast what happened on January 6th. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene visiting them in prison. Uh, it's really getting to be uh, an interesting turn in the conversation instead of trying to, you know, forget move center, but move away from some of the, the, the uglier stuff of January 6th as you pre- prepare for a re-election bid. Instead, he's embracing it and even said at the at the event that he chose Waco specifically because it wasn't a 50-50, he said. It was 100% Trump. Uh, so I guess it's you go all in when somebody like Ron DeSantis is around. Is that the strategy? Well, I think I think the calculation is they can't lose a Republican primary. At least that's, that's, that's what they're thinking right now. They're in that 90 to 95% likelihood on a Republican primary just because of the way things shake out in a winner-take-all system, which is what most of our primaries are, then the plurality is going to win. And if you get 35%, a five-person race, that's a plurality almost every single time. So I I, I think they're just, uh, that comes back to my my concept of they sort of think they're going to win the Republican primary. They know they need a lot of money going into the general, so they're trying to raise as much money as they can from these folks that go to these rallies. And then there's a pivot at some point? 
Um, no. And okay, that's why I just checking. I, I, I don't <laughs> think he pivots because, again, if he does, I think he's a, he's, a, he's a political force. But at some point, people don't believe a pivot, right? If, if you've been XXXXX for 20 years and then you pivot to Y, you know, three months before an election, people don't buy it. And it's, he's getting to the point where he might not be capable of pivoting even if he wanted to. Isn't that something? Well. Mick, thank you for talking to us, as always. Come do it in person next time. Mick Mulvaney back with us here on Bloomberg Sound On as we reassemble the panel for their take on what we just heard. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us here. Rick, is that message marketable, marketable I should say, beyond, what, 20 or 30 percent maybe of the electorate when you're, when you're adding the January 6th uh, stuff and some of the other extreme rhetoric we heard in Waco? No, I think Mick is spot on. I think this is not even designed to appeal to other people. It's designed to mobilize his base. Um, There's something to be said for that, right? Start with your base, get it mobilized, raise money, uh, and then find ways to extend your your value politically to other people. But I think Mick is also right in that he is so hardcore here, right? I mean, the idea that you know, you're going to deploy the criminal uh, choir to sing at the beginning of your your rallies. And this may not be the only time we see them uh, is uh, a, a real hard slog to then try and pivot to other voters who uh, see this as an anathema. Joe Biden, all the while, is trying to play team normal, uh, Jeannie, and his approval numbers are, are back near their lows. How do you have both? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the reality, what the Biden team is aware of. He won in 2020 and they did well in 2022 from being, quote, the adult in the room or team normal, as you say. And they're hoping that they can do that again this time around. That's going to depend on running against somebody who's defined as crazy. And that's why they're hoping it's Trump. But I have to say, you know, Trump, you know, we count him out. It's He's not adding votes, certainly. But let's not forget, voter turnout in 2020 was at a record high, 67 percent. And 80 million people did not get out. So it is not, you know, uh, beyond the pale that he could he could take this thing if he's able to win the primary. And so it is a very scary proposition after you listen to what he did in Waco this weekend. Yeah. What's Ron DeSantis's move here? Just does he be quiet here, Rick, or can he actually take a stand uh, on principle against some of the stuff that was seen and heard. Yeah, he could certainly take a stand on principle. And, you know, he was thrown under the bus during this rally, too. I mean, Donald Trump is not sparing any time going right after him. Uh, and he's got to make a calculation as to whether how much of that he can with, withstand before he has to actually do something about it. His his attempt last week at pushing back on Trump a little bit uh, uh, regarding the uh, the, the 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 court case in the New York stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was funny, but it wasn't really effective. So uh, at some point, I think he's going to notice that he's slipping uh, and not not really engaged. Uh, but he's 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 got to try to stay out of the fire if he can, because the one thing we've learned in 2016 is those people who wrestle with the pig get muddy and the pig gets happy. <laughs> That's the truth. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q. And be. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. 
News, the Israeli embassy in Washington will reopen tomorrow after the country's main labor group called off a strike. That's been a big part of this. Uh, the airport's been closed, as now we know, that Benjamin Netanyahu is pausing the, the legal overhaul following some serious protests that have been going on for days here. If you like car horns, this is what it sounded like earlier today. Thousands of people, and in some cases, uh, actually breaking out in confrontation with authorities in front of Netanyahu's home. It's been uh, quite a time here demonstrating against this plan again to overhaul the nation's judiciary. This has been shelved, at least delayed. We don't know exactly uh, what's going to happen at this point as it's just developed in the past 20 minutes or so. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano uh, are with us, and we're also going to add the voice of Joel Rubin president of Washington Strategy Group, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, of course, with us regularly on Sound On as part of our panel. We wanted to hear from Joel and just to kind of frame this, its significance and its context here uh, from The View in Washington. Uh, Joel, thanks for jumping on with us here. The White House was clearly very concerned about this. What does the development mean for our relationship with Netanyahu? Well, Joe, it's great to be with you and, and, and my colleague panelists here. Uh, the development right now in Israel is still a crisis, and it's putting severe stress right now on the bilateral relationship, not in terms of security, not in terms of overall American support for Israel, but on the question of democracy, you know, this week, the president's convening his second democracy summit, and uh, <laughs> the question of Israel, and is it backsliding into an autocratic system, uh, is on everyone's mind. So, uh, there's a lot of lot of concern. There's uh, questions about how will Israel move forward in this in a consensus manner that will not have the kinds of disruptions and eruptions that we've seen over the last few days, especially the last 48 hours. Does Benjamin Netanyahu try to bring this idea back to life, or are we past this this phase here? Oh no, we're 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 not at all past this. This is a pause. It's a, a, a tactical. Uh, retreat, uh, not a strategic one. Uh, He's going to try to strengthen up his coalition and ensure that he has the votes. uh, And and that means uh, understanding that the protests right now, and as you point out, the the Hisadrut, the the labor union of Israel, uh, the top business leaders, military leaders, everybody's out on the streets protesting. So he understands this is a moment he can't push. uh, So he's going to try to regroup, uh, strengthen his base, and then push it through after the Passover holidays. Is he taking Joe Biden's calls on this or, or is it, you know, OK, we delayed it. Uh, I, we're not we're not talking any further. I just wonder to what extent the administration can provide guidance here. Yeah. You know, President Biden has known the prime minister for decades upon decades back to when uh, the prime minister was serving here in the Israeli embassy in the 80s. So they go a ways back and uh, they did speak a week ago, uh, about eight, nine days ago. And on that call, the president did talk about the need for consensus. He's issued a gentle statement about that. That was the talking point last night from the National Security Council spokeswoman who made it very clear that the United States is concerned. And, and that's because the defense minister was fired by Prime Minister Netanyahu for having the audacity to declare opposition to a policy position of the prime minister. Uh, and that defense minister is the point person to the United States Defense Department on our military cooperation. So that didn't sit well with the national security leadership here uh, in Washington. And, and that's, uh, that's why there was that strong statement last night. 
Really something. Appreciate the insights. Joel Rubin of the Washington Strategy Group, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in both the Obama and Bush administrations, checking in today on breaking news here from Israel. Let's bring the panel back in. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano have certainly their own ideas on this. Jeannie, how does Joe Biden move forward here, uh, if only to just watch quietly for now? I was so glad to hear the mention of the summit this week. I mean, this is a summit. It's the second one, 120 countries coming. It's a huge challenge for this administration because they have, you know, not a very limited power in terms of what you what Joel described as these backsliding democracies like potentially Israel, Poland, India. And yet they're trying to hold them together. And this is, you know, when we talk about Ukraine, how can you confront a Russia or China? you know, support Ukraine unless you hold the democratic states together. So this is what is at risk here. And so, of course, Biden has to confront um, and, and you know, maybe not a face on, but confront Benjamin Netanyahu on this because it really does raise all kinds of questions about what is his primary foreign policy goals. And so he is going to have to address this and they are starting to do that. Benjamin Netanyahu sort of retreating, but if he starts to come back again on this, the U.S. and the administration are going to be in a position where they're going to have to respond. Do we need to help Israel uh, get its economy back open, Rick? I mean, things are in uh, a pretty strange state over there. I realize they called off strikes following the comments, uh, but this has turned into a pretty ugly display for a good couple of weeks now. Yeah, I think that uh, this this is what's complicating any real good economic uh, uh, viability that the country needs right now is the fact that they everyone has been gripped with this this issue. Uh, when you have the army reserves out protesting, you know, it's really quite incredible because they are so incredibly important to Israel and its security, which has been under siege. Uh, by renewed rocket attacks and and other incursions into the state. So uh, at a time when their economy is sagging, they have uh, attacks from from outside the country, uh, and now they have this massive uh, uh, dislocation politically, uh, I I think we're yet to see how this resolves itself. I mean, there's a good indication that maybe but Netanyahu's justice minister, uh, Yariv Levine, uh, who has been behind these 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 uh, 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 provisions uh, with the Supreme Court, uh, could wind up resigning because of the delay. So, you know, we have one one defense minister uh, who hits the bricks because of his opposition to this and now potentially ministers leaving because of Netanyahu's delay. So uh, all of this, I think, stands uh, uh, to reason that, uh, that Israel is not out of the woods on this in any way, shape, or form. How does this impact Netanyahu's tenure, Rick? Or is it too early to weigh in on that? I mean, look, I think this uh, Likud party discipline is a question, right? I yeah. mean, his party has uh, been on Iraqi Straits for some time. Uh, there's no question uh, that if this doesn't resolve itself in a way that holds the coalition together, we'll know right away because the the, the farther right members of his coalition are going to make their voices known now sure. that he's done this. And that could, that could break apart the uh, coalition and start talk about another election, the fifth election yeah, exactly. in, in almost a year. We'll be measuring uh, things in Netanyahu's instead of Scaramucci's, Jeannie. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, on the economic front, I don't think we can underscore that enough. Many people see that Netanyahu did great things for Israel as it pertains to the economy. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Business app. 
You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Joe Matthew and Kaylee Lines on Bloomberg Sound On. We're live in Washington with a couple of pretty important headlines, uh, Kaylee. I, I, I didn't know if they'd call you in over the weekend. <laughs> it didn't come to that. It didn't come to it this weekend. This but, weekend, uh, as know, it did we'll... the one before. But SVB is sold, or at least the carcass of... Yes. SVB is sold. Yes. $72 billion. Be making people feel kind of good today. Yeah, it's definitely. We check the box, I guess. Better mood music for citizens agreeing to take those $72 billion in assets for a pretty sweet deal of $16.5 billion from the FDIC. That is one thing helping. The other being reports from Bloomberg over the weekend, because while I wasn't working, others were doing doing the good work uh, of talking about what's going on in regulation, talking about the possibility that U.S. authorities are going to try to help First Republic through by. Uh, changing some measures. So all of that is is setting a better tone ahead of these hearings on Capitol Hill uh, that we're expecting in the Senate tomorrow and in the House Financial Services Committee on Wednesday. And we're starting, Joe, to get the uh, planned testimony from those who will be testifying there. We got Michael Barr, the Fed's vice chair of supervision, earlier today. And we just had the testimony drop from Marty Grunberg at the FDIC. Yeah, you'll be hearing more as we kind of pick our way through that. But the other headline that catches our attention here is small U.S. banks lose $109 mm. billion dollars in deposits in a single week. Moody's has numbers on this. The biggest 25 banks gained $120 billion at that same time. So, you know, we've been talking about this in real time. To actually get numbers like that to kind of confirm what you've already been talking about, Kaylee, is remarkable. Yeah, this concern around deposit flight. The That's idea a lot that. Of money. If you want your deposits to be safe, maybe you go to the banks that are deemed too big to fail because you don't know that everything will be guaranteed at another bank just because they were at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. That is definitely a subject of conversation that will be, I'm sure, uh, elevated at the hearing yesterday. Let's get the take from someone who had a hand in regulating banks now. Keith Naraka is joining us. He is currently Executive Vice President and Chairman of Banking Supervision and Regulation at Potomac Global Partners, but he previously served as Acting Comptroller of the currency. So, Keith, thank you so much for joining us. It is great to have you with us. If you could pick one question for Marty Grunberg and Michael Barr and Nellie Lang tomorrow, what would it be? Well, thanks for having me, Kaylee and Joe. Um, look, a different, difficult situation all around. Um, but it's, um, I think my one question would be, what is the extent of mismatched books um, on, on balance sheets of, of banks uh, that they supervise, and, and what's the plan to deal with that, and how are we going to internalize that into the metrics uh, that regulators use to evaluate the health uh, of banks and, and then make it public to the markets? Because, you know, we're seeing different uh, a divergence between regulatory reports, you know, saying banks are well capitalized, um, and, you know, anyone on the Internet uh, going and marking banks' books to market their securities portfolios Mm-hmm. And a different story, and and so I think there's going to have to be uh, some some overtime, uh, some matching up of of those two expectations. Keith, once we get through these two hearings, will there be a concerted debate about raising FDIC insurance caps, particularly for individuals, or are they going to come out of this and say, you know what, the system worked, the contagion has been blocked, there's no stomach to really get anything big done here in Washington? Well, there's always that, right? <laughs> That's true. Um, Sitting here in Washington next to the White House, but uh, uh, look, I think um, it's a it's a it's a big lift to, to you know have unlimited deposit insurance, and it fundamentally transforms 
the industry in ways that may not be favorable to the to the smaller banks. I mean, one thing they have going for them now is in suite type arrangements, they have a charter um, and they can they can take in two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of deposits. So, you know, I think we're going to have to think about this um, as a policy matter and and really look at sort of what might need um, more extended deposit insurance, such as like payroll accounts or or transaction accounts, but maybe not all accounts. Um, and then, you know, sort of work from there. It's also, you know, fairly expensive proposition. Right. Um, and, and that's going to have to go in as well. So there's the question of those potential changes. There's also just the question of what regulatory and supervisory changes may stem from this. I mentioned we just got the planned testimony of the FDIC chair, Marty Grunberg. Part of it reads that the prudential regulation of these institutions merits serious attention, particularly for capital liquidity and interest rate risk. There has been a lot of back and forth, Keith, around the role of the 2018 rollback of certain Dodd-Frank requirements for banks of a certain size. I remember speaking with you at the beginning of all this, calling you up and you know getting your take on what is going on. And you said this is really just about the duration gap. It's an age-old problem. Yeah. So how much attention really should be paid to these capital requirements? Or is this just the wrong thing to be looking at? Well, I think they all need to be married up, Kaylee. Um, you know, we, we put in a lot of uh, requirements in Dodd-Frank uh, with uh, capital liquidity, um, and and in some ways the interest rate duration gap got left behind. That was a uh, you know a few scandals or, or a few crises before um, the financial crisis and the SNL crisis. So you know if you think about an old agency that actually got abolished during uh, Dodd Frank, the Office of Thrift Supervision, that actually kept interest rate risk reports and published them on the industry, and those kind of went away, and everyone was fighting the last battle and not a few battles. Uh, before that. So, you know, it, it may make sense. Um, you know, and certainly capital, I think, is top of mind. Liquidity rules, I think, are a little bit harder, right? Because mm. they could actually be contributing uh, to this problem if they don't also incorporate interest rate risk uh, into those models. So liquidity, obviously, super important for banks, super expensive, um, but has to be done in a way that doesn't exacerbate uh, interest rate risk. So, it's all on the table, um, you know, clearly and, and has been. I mean, the, the Fed's rules apply uh, these requirements uh, to banks over $100 billion, even after the reforms of 2018. Um, but we kind of got got to get back to basics. There was like a little bit of a regulatory blind spot with 40 mm-hmm. years of easy money. Um, and um, those old lessons of the 70s and 80s are, are coming back uh, uh, with a vengeance now. What's your take, Keith, on on the the role that those 2018 changes played? Uh, the fact that those banks weren't subject to as stringent uh, a stress test as might have happened during Dodd Frank was that to blame? Would it have actually pointed something out that regulators missed? Yeah, not so much in the case of these banks because they would have like um, they were always under 250, so they never were subject to the, the stringent uh, liquidity rules. And they were also, um, you know, for many parts of their tenure, under 50. So even under yeah. the, the old rules, they wouldn't have been captured. I think it's, uh, and you see this in Michael Barr's um, uh, written testimony that uh, just came that Kaylee was talking about. Um, there, There is also a notion of, like, the accelerated growth um, and whether mm-hmm. that, you know, should be an independent flag aside from size, uh, you know, never been kind of incorporated into the prudential standards since Dodd-Frank, but probably needs to be. This could be a bad day for Michael Barr, right? 
uh, he, Kaylee, yeah. I mean, I'd rather be sitting there representing the FDIC than the Fed tomorrow. I, I don't know your thought on that. Well, I think he is in a very difficult political position because on the one hand, the Fed board has been made a point to come out and say that, yes, they did know about some of these concerns because perhaps they don't want to be caught seeming as though they hadn't been paying any attention at all. On the other hand, that then puts you in the position of looking like you knew about it, yet you didn't act quickly enough mm-hmm. to make sure that this didn't happen. So he's definitely going to get some tough questions. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be in his chair, Joe. You're absolutely right. There also is the question, Keith, about how this moment is different. You mentioned how we had seen just it was incredibly quick how quickly the deposit base was growing and that maybe that should have been concern concerning. The other thing that was incredibly quick was how quickly the run happened, something that was accelerated perhaps by social media and digital banking. How do you regulate for this new world? Well, I think you have to be very careful, right? Because I know this is uh, a little bit of debate, um, you know, others and I have had, but like social media kind of also is an equalizer, right? Because in a bank mm-hmm. run, there's no, you know, no cries for second place. And and, you know, you wouldn't want just the well-positioned uh, to be advantaged and everyone else uh, to, to come up short. So it certainly accelerates um, things. And, and we saw some things new happen as far as bank closures go, like uh, closing Silicon Valley Bank uh, at the beginning of a workday on a Friday rather than at the end right. of the day. Usually the regulator likes to do it at the end of the day. Um, but but I think the regulators have to more adjust than sort of blaming social media because, hmm. you know, it's it's sort of everyone's in it uh, for themselves. And, and the more transparent the information is, the fairer it is, um, but you know, ironically. I, t- I take your point on, on social media, but on just the ability to move money around quickly in digital banking, yeah. should should regulators and policymakers be thinking about ways in which to slow that down? Well, uh, Kaylee, I think we're headed in the other direction, right? I mean, isn't like a, a sort of maybe another question for Michael Barr tomorrow, but like, you know, FedNow is going live in, right. in July. Great point. So, you know, it, I mean, it, you wonder what these things would look like if you could move money over the weekend, right, or after mm. business hours, and that's going to presumably be available um, in a few short months. So, hmm. so yeah, I think those are certainly issues you'd want to have top of mind, and because like these breaks in the business days and all do give people a chance to, you know, like a circuit breaker in the market, um, and I think. Um, we're sort of headed fast in the other direction and and people may want to rethink that before like fed now goes live for instance keith are you worried these two hearings drag this uh into the political morass from which it will not be saved you know people have (laughs) very strong opinions and but yet no consensus on capitol hill yeah well that's washington i don't think you're ever going to avoid a political morass and (laughs) and and the like Um, but in terms of people at home learning about what actually happened and seeing yeah. policies, you know, move to to potentially correct it or or prevent it from happening again, or we're just going to make commercials all week. No, I think I think over time they're generally um, the banking laws, other than Dodd Frank maybe, but like have generally been uh, consensus driven. Certainly in my lifetime, you know, probably every five to ten years, there's a big banking legislation go through, and then maybe other than Dodd-Frank, but, you know, the Democrats had pretty much a supermajority at that point. So even Dodd-Frank, maybe you'd say, were, you know, consensus bills. Certainly the 2018 uh, law was with like 66, um, you know, senators supporting it, a a big group of Democrats. So I think think there'll be a consensus over time. 
As we're talking to you, Keith, the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, is briefing reporters in, in a headline just crossed the terminal that she just said that regional banks' deposits have stabilized. There does mm. seem to be a sense that we're in calmer waters now, but as a regulator who I'm sure is a former regulator who I'm sure is still very plugged into the, the conversations with those still closely monitoring this here in Washington, how concerned should we be still? How concerned are you? Well, look, if I'm looking at the value of these banks, I would, you know, you have a potential capital hole in the in the market value or, or you know, the, the given if you mark the market the securities book. And then so you have to plug that and then you have to look at what the franchise value of the bank is going forward uh, if uh, the duration gap issues are fixed. So you can't sort of arbitrage a mismatch duration of a book. Um, and and then sort of what does the bank look like? So I think like you know there's a lot of liquidity in the market. It may be funding slow runs, um, and which is what you were kind of talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. I think you know the equity value of these banks is is probably driven by what it what it, what the bank is going to look like in the future. Are there um, potential um, buyers? Um, and so one of the signals I think was. Interesting last night with this first union, uh, first citizens uh, yeah. acquisition of SVB is like, you know, maybe this set of regulators is going to be OK with some bank mergers and consolidation of especially this segment of the marketplace, which I think they need to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that then sends a good signal of private capital coming in to stabilize the, that that part of the market. Again, this particular set of regulators hasn't been too keen on bank M&A. It's been kind of a red line for progressives. Uh, but they seem to be loosening up on that a little bit. Keith, thanks for the insights. Great to have you with us today at this important time. There's so little uh, that has really settled yet, and it's great to hear from uh, Keith Noraka, Kaylee, fascinating insights on a story that's still unfolding. But to your point, there does seem to be a little bit of confidence, a little bit more optimism today than there was even on Friday. Yeah, that's not to say that we don't have still unanswered questions. We don't fully know what the fate of First Republic will be, but we do know that SBB found a buyer, finally. Mm-hmm. It took took some time, took longer than many may have liked. And but First Republic is in the wings here waiting for a, exactly, a final fix, right? Right. So there's still questions that we are looking for answers for, and I'm sure that lawmakers are going to get try, try to get some answers over the next couple of days. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We're standing by to hear from President Biden. Just want to let you know he's actually hosting the SBA Women's Business Summit today at the White House, but that is not what he's likely to address in the outset from the East Room in just about 10 minutes. At least that's the schedule now. You may have heard about this shooting at a school in Nashville where a female assailant shot and killed three children and three adults. The president, as we understand from the press secretary, is going to be speaking to the nation about that. We will carry his remarks 
uh, as soon as they begin, knowing that they are not always uh, aligned with the schedule at the White House. I'm Joe Matthew, along with Kaylee Lyons in Washington. As we add Kate Davidson to the conversation, I've been looking forward to this as we get our arms around what happened over the weekend and what is about to unfold, Kaylee, in the next couple of days. It's House and Senate, mm-hmm. lots of grandstanding, but also hopefully some learning about what led to that we're going all the way back here to the yep. very beginnings of this crisis with SVB and Signature. Yeah, we're expecting to get a breakdown of what exactly transpired that led to the failures of these two banks. We've been hearing from lawmakers all throughout the course of the last several weeks that before they decide what they want to do in the future, they want to get to the bottom of what actually happened. So that's what they're going to attempt to do in conversation with Nellie Lang from the Treasury, with Michael Barr, the Fed's vice chair of supervision, and with the FDIC chair, Marty Grunberg, over the next couple of days. I was joking, but not joking, uh, Kate, a couple of minutes ago that would not want to be Michael Barr tomorrow. I'm, I'm thinking that, that he's going to he's going to take the most heat from lawmakers who've really gone out of their way to point out lapses in the Fed's oversight. I think that's safe to assume for sure. He is going to be in in the hot seat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, which of course there have been a few uh, banks that have collapsed, but Silicon Valley kind of the first one that uh, I think folks on the Hill certainly are most focused on. And they, of course, were regulated by California state regulators, but also supervisors at the San Francisco Fed. So Barr, of course, he you know he he only came into this position fairly recently. It was confirmed by Congress uh, by the Senate last year. But nevertheless, I mean, as the Fed's vice chair for supervision, he is the person. Who who is meant to have a broad view of all of these issues in the Fed system. So I think for sure he's going to get a lot of tough questions about what what officials at the Fed knew, when they knew it, <laughs> what they did to address these problems, um, and what were the shortcomings. And I, I really expect that Michael Barr is going to be pretty circumspect because the Fed is conducting an investigation. So they're going to push him to say <laughs> as much <laughs> as he can. Uh, and if he's not forthcoming, I don't think they're going to uh, take that well. Wow. Well, you, you mentioned the idea of what they knew when. We have heard from the Fed. Chairman Powell addressed this at the press conference last week that they were aware of some of these issues going back a couple years, which confirmed the reporting that Bloomberg and other outlets uh, had had in the aftermath. So if they knew and it still happened, I would imagine that just makes it a little bit tougher for them to defend themselves. I think they are in a tough spot. It is tricky to explain that, right? I mean, I think, I don't think the Fed wants to be perceived at all as as being clueless here. They don't Mm -hmm. want to look like they didn't know what was happening. So, right, they're coming out and saying, yes, we were aware of some of these issues. But right, that that naturally raises the question of, okay, well, so then what did you do? And uh, and why wasn't it effective? Or why wasn't it quick enough? Uh, And those are the kinds of questions that he's going to get tomorrow. What does he defer on? What does he, you know, because of an ongoing investigation and sure he'll have a card in front of him with a disclaimer on it, right? What's the stuff we want to know that he cannot tell us this week? Sure. So I, I think that, um, I mean, I think a big question that lawmakers will really be trying to home in on is to what extent was this a problem with legislative changes, right, yeah, that right. Um, the Republicans and some Democrats supported in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, that that essentially, I think the idea was to make it easier for supervisors to have more discretion when it came to banks that were in this mid-sized category, which of course was what SVB was in. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Democrats are, are going to try and push Michael Barr to 
endorse this idea that it was these terrible changes pushed right, by Republicans. Course, yeah. And he's I, not going there. He's not going to go there, right? And I think that um, that Republicans it will be a little more interesting to see how how they approach it. They don't want to do the opposite. Have him say that <laughs> these never would have been caught in a stress test under Dodd Frank. Right. Well, I mean that's that's the thing. I think that they probably will direct direct more of their uh, their energy at you know what Mary Daly at the San Francisco Fed was doing and the mm-hmm. supervisory shortcomings here. Uh, so I, I that's my sense of how lawmakers will approach those questions. Well, it also raises the question around the fact that this is all happening when Michael Barr already was doing a holistic review of bank capital requirements. I mean, this was pre-bank failures, something that on Capitol Hill, his boss, Jay Powell, was getting a lot of questions about, the tailoring and the the capital requirements. When are we going to get insight into what he's actually thinking? When do we expect those changes and the results of that particular review to, to come? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think all of the energy right now, of course, is focused on what's happening in the banking system, not just what happened a couple weeks ago with these banks that failed and collapsed, uh, but also what other vulnerabilities there are right Right. now. So so Michael Barr, I I think he he has to lead this internal review. He has to make sure that at the Fed, they're keeping a close eye on other instability issues. Um, So it feels a little bit like that that other review and that look at capital is, is perhaps a little bit on the back burner. But right, that's something that will be listening for tomorrow and find out if we get more insight on that. But I think that it harkens back a little bit to what happened after the financial crisis, where there was uh, there were a lot of questions about what uh, regulators got wrong and whether they should maintain the kind of powers uh, that they had. And the Fed ended up consolidating a lot of authority over mm-hmm. over bank regulation and supervision. And there are definitely folks out there now who think that that was a mistake and it ought to be revisited. So that will also be interesting to hear from from lawmakers how how they view that and whether they ask Michael Barr to sort of defend the Fed's role, um, bro- you know, more broadly in, 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 these, in supervision. Kaylee mentioned there were some, uh, some brief comments from Corrine Jean-Pierre today on stabilizing banks. Does the administration believe the worst of the crisis is now behind us? Uh, what needs to be the posture of the administration from here? They're going to be watching these hearings next couple of days. They feel like their job is done. Well, it, I, I don't. I don't know. I think. I think it remains to be seen. Right. It's. It's really important. I think that the. Um, you know, the, the regulators and, and to some extent the administration. They don't want to scare people. Right. They don't want right. any more panic. And I do think that there's a view in the administration that a lot of what's happening is psychological to su- to some extent. Um, a lot of the concern by depositors. Um, and we've seen officials like Janet Yellen try to come out and stumble a little bit and sort of explaining yeah. how the administration is viewing this issue. Whether I'll deposits are protected, what they would do if there's more, there are more vulnerabilities. So they have to sort of express, you know, confidence that they've got a handle on this. But, you know, they don't want to be too sanguine either, because I think there is still a lot of uncertainty about what's what's to come. Yeah, right. So it's a very careful line to walk. I yeah. wonder if that's why we didn't hear from the president this morning. I thought when I saw the headlines, like, you know what, he'll come out maybe like two weeks ago, 9 a.m. before the markets, just to push that message home yeah. that, you know what, we took care of it. You don't you don't have to worry about your money. But it was silent. Yeah, that's a really good point. But but also to your point, Kate, about the kind of consistent message and projecting calm, sound and resilient 
Mm-hmm. We have heard that countless Those are the two times. magic words. And including from Fed Chair Jay Powell, who talked about the sound soundness and resilience of the U.S. banking system after the <laughs> Fed did hike rates last week. I also have to wonder how those testifying tomorrow may be pushed about the impact of continued tightening monetary policy on the banking system now as we go forward. Right. It feels like that's kind of the the bigger question um, that obviously the Fed has to contend with and that others, including you know ourselves, reporters here on the Fed team, are, are focusing on what are the broader economic implications. And so, right, there, there might not be a risk of further bank failures. They might have that issue and, and that potential contagion sort of c- contained. And mm-hmm. I think they feel pretty good that they do. But but uh, what are the knock-on effects? Even if there are no more bank failures, how do banks respond? How do credit conditions tighten? And what does that mean for the economy? And what does it mean for the Fed and Fed policy? As we know, over $100 billion in bank deposits moved from smaller banks to bigger ones, according to Moody's. I think it was $109 billion, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about that earlier. But if no more banks fail, and if we're feeling pretty good about the way SVB worked out, I keep asking people, we're done, right? Nothing's happening in Congress that's going to change any rules of the road here if they think there's no further contagion. Yeah, I, I and think— And you can—by the way, I'm totally putting you on the spot. You can yeah. look in your crystal ball if you choose to. <laughs> well, I certainly think there are some lawmakers that will continue using this episode as a reason to try to push mm-hmm. legislative changes. But right, will there be broad support if things calm down? Yeah, probably not. I think that's fair to say. So what you see is what you get, Kaylee. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see what we get tomorrow and and how much of each five minutes that lawmakers are allotted to ask questions of those testifying, how much of it is actually going (laughs) to be questions? Right. How how many times will we hear the word transitory? How about that one? That could be a drinking game tomorrow because that's been another part of the, the, the knock on the Fed here, right, is if you started earlier, this might not have happened. Yeah, I, th- I think there's de- that's definitely going to to come up, um, and I think it it, it will get, be interesting. You, know, you always when we watch these hearings, you expect some of the newsier moments to happen at the very yeah, beginning, right. but some of the real interesting stuff can come at the end, where they get into <laughs> okay. these sort of second order issues, and and I I definitely think that's going to be one of that's them. That's a good pro tip if you're watching these hearings. <laughs> I would say, by the way, tune in after the chair, all that business. Right. Uh, great to have you come in uh, on what I know is a busy time. Kate. Thanks for the time today on Sound On. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.